one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 26, The Sack of Antioch. Two episodes ago, we saw the Persian king Khusro amass his army on the borders of Syria and prepare for war. The king had a list of justifications for breaking the eternal peace, but his prime motivation for the campaign was cash. The Byzantines had left themselves open to attack after getting bogged down in the Italian campaign, and Khusro saw some low-hanging fruit, ripe for the picking. As soon as Spring 540 arrived, Khusro's massive army crossed the border, avoiding Dara, and made their way down the Euphrates to the city of Sura. You can follow the action on the map which accompanied episode 11, or if you prefer the Facebook page, then all the maps are there too. The garrison at Sura resisted the Persian attack and sent their bishop out to plead with the great king. Once these discussions were over, the Persians took advantage of the bishop's return to the city, burst through the gates, and sacked it. Revealing to all his desire for loot, Khusro sent word to the bishop of nearby Sergiopolis, Candidus, asking him to ransom the 12,000 captives he'd taken for 200 pounds of gold. Candidus didn't have that kind of money, and so the king made him a deal. If he put in writing what he owed and agreed to pay it within a year, then all would be well. If he didn't pay it, then he would owe double next year and must resign his bishopric. Having suitably blackmailed a man who was bound by his office to make an honourable deal, the Persians moved on. They next came to Hierapolis, whose defences were sturdier than Sura's. Khusro again offered a deal. For 2,000 pounds of silver, he would not set up a siege or ravage the surrounding area. The citizens agreed, emptied their wallets, and the Persians moved on. The next city they approached was Veria, spelt Beroia on the maps, modern Aleppo, where the king demanded double what Hierapolis had paid. The city could only match it, though, and after paying up, Veria was sacked anyway, for either lacking the necessary funds or withholding them. Now at this point, I hope you're wondering, where the hell is the Byzantine army? The actual regiments of the Army of the East 
were not gathered in one place most of the time. They had thousands of miles of border to garrison, including Egypt way down south, and had not been brought together under a central command. In a strange move, Belisarius had never been replaced as Magister Militum for the East. With the eternal peace in place, I suppose the assumption was that he could take time off to go conquering and would be able to make it back in time should he be needed in Mesopotamia. Well, we all know how that turned out, as at this stage Belisarius was still sitting in a tent outside the gates of Ravenna. So overall command of the army of the east fell to Buzis, the man whose brother was killed by the Persians, who had fought at the Battle of Dara, and was now in charge of the army of Armenia. By the time Kusro moved on from Sura, Buzis was at Hierapolis, with the forces he'd been able to gather. Procopius merely reports that he left the city with a garrison and took the rest of his army out into the countryside, with the plan being to fall on the besieging Persians from behind. As we shall see, though, Buzis never did get involved in the fighting. Instead, he left the Persians to march from city to city while he remained at a safe distance. What are we to make of this seeming cowardice? It's interesting to note that Procopius is full of numbers when it comes to Byzantine victories, but is oddly silent on the size of the Persian army which invaded Syria. From this omission, and Buzi's decision to back away slowly, I think we can assume that the Persian host was particularly large. Even an invasion force of, say, 40 or 50,000 might have been enough to make any attempt at fighting them a suicide mission. The army of Armenia was not even half that size, and Buzis would have had men spread out across the east, garrisoning its cities. Okay, you say, maybe Buzis has his excuses, but what was Justinian doing about all this? Well, the emperor was, of course, anxious to defend the east, and aside from cursing Belisarius under his breath, he sent his cousin Germanus with a few hundred men to take charge of the defence of Antioch. The empire's third largest city was the most likely target of the Persian invasion, and someone needed to take stock of the situation. The city had still not fully recovered from the devastating earthquake of 526, and according to Procopius, Germanus concluded that the walls were not strong enough to withstand a siege. The best the general could do was to ask the bishop of Veria to negotiate with Kusro and try to bribe or persuade him not to sack the city. The king claimed that he was amenable to being paid off and asked for a thousand pounds of gold. However, Justinian had sent word to Germanus that no money was to be handed over. It seems like the emperor didn't want the wealth of his cities disappearing piecemeal while the Persians roamed around. He presumably wanted to force them to negotiate with him for an overall sum as he had paid to secure the eternal peace. But sitting in the palace a thousand miles away, the lack of instant communication left Justinian playing catch-up, just as he had done with Ravenna. With the Persian army set to arrive at Antioch in mere days, this was the worst time to play hardball. Germanus soon abandoned the city as well, with Procopius reporting that there was no point in the general staying after he had warned the citizens of Antioch that their walls would not hold. However, another source tells a different story and reports that Germanus spent his last days in Antioch 
buying silver off fleeing citizens. Now, this might seem like a rather odd character assassination at first, but being the emperor's cousin, it's entirely possible that Germanus had access to enough gold to offer a deal to the many wealthy citizens who were fleeing Antioch at the news of the Persian invasion. Gold would be lighter and easier to carry than silver, which most movable wealth would be made of. So citizens who were interested could sell their precious items to Germanus, who would be able to load them onto boats headed for Constantinople while making a tidy profit. If true, the incident paints Germanus in a terrible light, because not only was he profiteering during war, but he then abandoned the city despite the imminent arrival of 6,000 reinforcements from the neighbouring province. After Belisarius's great labours in defending Rome, it's hard not to look askance at Germanus as he slinked off to the safety of Cilicia. By June, the Persians arrived at Antioch, looking for their money. The reinforcements had arrived at just the wrong moment. The citizens of Antioch might have been able to raise considerable sums themselves, but the new arrivals gave them a false sense of confidence. The Persians set up a siege, quickly overwhelmed the defences, and took possession of the guard towers. Khusro had deliberately left one gate out of the city open to encourage the residents to flee and make his job easier. Just as the king hoped, it was the Byzantine troops who were first out the door once they knew the city was about to fall. When they were gone, the Persians stormed in, and it was left to the blues and greens the young men of the Hippodrome, to mount what resistance they could. But against professional soldiers, it was only delaying the inevitable. The sack of the city cost thousands of lives, and once it was firmly in the king's hands, he ordered it stripped of all its wealth and destroyed. Anything that could be taken was, including all the gold, silver, and even marble from the city's cathedral church. Once the king's wagons were full, the city was burnt and levelled, dealing a devastating blow to Syria and to Justinian's reputation. Of course the emperor was aghast at the news. He dispatched ambassadors to Khusro immediately to try and persuade the king to go home. Khusro asked for 5,000 pounds of gold and another 500 every year after that. And while this offer made its way back to Constantinople, Khusro headed down to Antioch's port, where he enjoyed a nice bath in the Mediterranean. This was a deliberate reenactment of conquerors of old who had come from Mesopotamia to wash their weapons in the Great Sea. The Persians then headed to Apamea, where the citizens just opened the gates and let the Persians take any movable wealth they desired. The story goes that Khusro hosted a chariot race in the city's hippodrome and insisted that the green rider should win just so he could stick it to the well-known blue partisan Justinian. More protection money was taken from nearby Chalkis before the army moved north to Edessa. Edessa was already a well-fortified city and Boozies had been active making sure it was well garrisoned to the point where the king knew it would be fruitless to besiege it. He did, however, accept another 200 pounds of gold not to pillage the surrounding countryside. 
While pausing near Edessa, Justinian's envoys finally caught up with the king and ratified the agreement that had been proposed back at Antioch. The agreement stipulated that the king should return home without approaching any more cities. And although Khusro agreed to the terms, he let his army extort more money from the cities of Cari and Constantia before making an attempt to capture Dara. The Byzantines successfully countermined an attempt to dig under its walls, but the damage was done. Justinian was furious that the agreement had been broken, and peace negotiations were called off even as the king's army crossed back into Persian territory. War in the East so expensively ended a decade before, would now resume all across the frontier, putting tremendous strain on the empire's resources. The invasion of 540 was a humiliation for Justinian, who the citizens of the East rightly felt he had abandoned to pursue conquests in the West. One chronicler hysterically claims that there was not a farmer or a taxpayer left of the treasury, And while that's an absurd exaggeration, it sums up the bitter feelings at the time. During the sack of Veria, we hear the alarming story that part of the garrison deserted to the Persians, claiming that they hadn't been paid in five years. Quite what Justinian thought of Germanus' behaviour, we don't know, but he was not given another military command for many years. Antioch, of course, was a smouldering ruin. Justinian claimed that he would rebuild the city on a grander scale, as he always did, but the archaeological evidence suggests that this was not so. 30,000 citizens were taken prisoner and led across the border back to Persia. In a sort of humorous postscript to their torment, Khusro had his men take down the dimensions of Antioch before he destroyed it. He then built a new city near Tessaphon, based on those plans, and housed the Antiochians in a city made to look just like their own. In the most hilarious translation I've found, the king named his city Khusros, better than Antioch. Yeah, that'll show him. The campaign was a huge success for the king of kings, though. In Tessaphon, he had a mural painted in his throne room of the sack of Antioch. Some say in a deliberate attempt to outdo Justinian's celebratory mosaics of the Vandal campaign. The damage to the empire's prestige was felt immediately, as the king of Lazica, seeing which way the wind was blowing, decided to switch his country's allegiance back to the Persians. You'll recall that Lazica is the country to the north of Armenia, on the coast of the Black Sea. The switch of allegiance from Persia to Byzantium had been the cause of the war which had broken out at the start of Justinian's reign. That war had left the Byzantines in control of the city of Petra, on the Black Sea coast, from which their garrison operated and controlled all trade coming into the country. The custom duties charged by the imperial administrators were seen by the Byzantines as a fair price to help pay for their presence, but was a much-resented levy from the Laz perspective. With Antioch burning to the ground, Gubazes decided it was time to give Khusro a call and get himself a better deal. This was a tempting offer for the Persians, as it would give them access to the Black Sea and direct communication with the tribes in the north. 
By either method, they could harass the Byzantines and even contemplate attacking Constantinople if they ever needed to. By the next summer, 541, Allah's embassy guided a Persian army through the thick forests and hill passes of the country to Petra, where after a brief siege, the garrison capitulated and the Persians took control. At this point, though, messengers reached Khusro telling him that Belisarius had finally reached the east. The general had returned to Constantinople too late to do anything about the invasion of Syria, but once spring 541 arrived, he headed east with his buccalarii and the Gothic cavalry taken from Italy and prepared to invade Persian territory. The general was joined by the Ghassanid Arabs, led by their phylarch Harith, and a council of war was held to determine where to invade. As master of soldiers, Belisarius could have dictated terms, but it seems his experience in Italy had pushed him to look for consensus, rather than let malcontents fester amongst his ranks. However, once again, the general's inability to control his subordinates nearly cost him dear. Leading the army out from Dara, Belisarius set up camp nine kilometers outside Nisbis, trying to lure the city's garrison into a battle. However, two of his sub-commanders camped much closer to the city and fell prey to a surprise attack. Belisarius quickly advanced to drive back the Persians, but the chance to inflict a heavy defeat was gone. The army moved on and did succeed in destroying the fort of Cicerana and taking slaves, while Harith led a raiding party into Assyria. However, Harith's men slipped away from their Byzantine minders and kept the captured loot for themselves, while Belisarius's army began to suffer from exhaustion in the blistering summer sun. Once disease began to spread, Belisarius gave up the attempt to penetrate any further and was then summoned to return to Constantinople for the winter. In the secret history, Procopius sheds some light, or throws some muck, on the general's withdrawal from Persian territory. He claims that Belisarius's real motive was to meet up with his wife Antonina, who he had just heard was having an affair. Not just any affair, either. Apparently, it was with a young man named Theodosius, who Belisarius had adopted before leaving for Africa. To make things even seedier, Antonina's own son from a previous relationship was apparently the one who blew the whistle. It's difficult to know which of the various subplots of family drama are really true or just exaggerations from the toxic pen of Procopius, but we do know that Belisarius's love for Antonina could not be shaken, and he endeavoured not to go on campaign without her again. Back in Constantinople, Antonina had certainly been busy, stirring up trouble with her good friend, the Empress Theodora. Theodora was active in pursuing her personal enemies, and by 541 it was the greedy Praetorian prefect, John the Cappadocian, who was firmly in her sights. Apparently John's ambitions were so great that he agreed to a meeting where Antonina proposed overthrowing Justinian and putting Belisarius on the throne. John readily agreed, while hidden witnesses listened in with horror. That's the story, anyway. Justinian either took pity on, or was lenient to, the man who had funded all his dreams, 
and simply confiscated his property and forced him into the service of the church. John held out hope of returning to office, and although the emperor would continue to protect his former favourite, he would never be recalled. Back on the Eastern Front, Procopius claims that had Belisarius not turned back, his army could have marched on Tessaphon, sacked it, and freed the former residents of Antioch. But even if Belisarius's army were not ill and overheated, this seems like a tall tale. We saw in Italy that Belisarius was a cautious field commander, who didn't want to leave enemy units to his rear. So it would have been deeply out of character for the general to attempt to besiege a heavily fortified city when he knew full well that Khusro's army would soon return. The next spring, the King of Kings looked west again, this time at Palestine. Having despoiled Syria of its riches, he now imagined sacking Jerusalem and returning with even more loot to glorify his realm. First, though, he returned to Sergiopolis, where the unfortunate Bishop Candidus was forced into captivity because he could not pay for the promise he'd made to ransom captives. Belisarius returned from the capital and gathered up the army of the east to face the great king. The Persians again outnumbered the Byzantines, and if the two sides had faced off, it would doubtless have been the greatest challenge that Belisarius would ever face. But Khusro didn't invade. Instead, he demolished this small settlement of Kalinicum and returned home. Procopius tries to claim that it was the diplomatic genius of Belisarius that sent a shiver up the king's spine. But in reality, it was a far, far more real threat than the reputation of any general. Bubonic plague had reached the armies in the east. The arrival of the plague is such a defining moment in the history of the Roman Empire that I'm going to pause there for this week. For anyone keeping count, it's now been one year since I posted episode one and declared my intention to continue the style, spirit, and story of the History of Rome podcast. I've really enjoyed the project, and I'm so grateful to all of you for your support and feedback over the last 12 months. I would love to continue and keep the story of the Roman Empire going all the way to its end. As you can imagine, though, getting the podcast out even every two weeks takes a lot of time. My other two jobs are flexible enough that they've allowed me to keep up with the schedule, but as it's gone on, it has encroached more and more into my daily life. And the costs have mounted. Buying books has been necessary at times, but more costly are the servers, which, as some of you know, have had to be upgraded twice to keep up with demand. Back in episode one, I said I would take the story forward to the end of Justinian's reign before deciding whether I could continue. That's still the plan, but I'm afraid I won't be able to continue beyond that without your financial support. Many of you already anticipated this decision, and I've decided that now is the right time to ask for your help. So, the next episode covering the plague will come out as normal in two weeks' time. Then the podcast after that will appear one week later and will not be on the feed for free. Instead, it will be for sale. 
My aim is to raise enough to make the podcast a slice of my income so that I can justify the amount of time I'm spending on it. So you know what you're getting into, here's what I'm offering to do. I will continue to provide the History of Rome-style storytelling format every two weeks and give you the narrative of Byzantine political and military history. At the end of each century, though, I will provide several walking tour-style episodes to examine what has changed across the empire in the past hundred years and explore social, cultural, and economic developments in more detail. I will also be encouraging all of you to ask any questions you like so we don't leave behind any incident or mystery from each period before we move on. I hope to occasionally score an interview with a historian who can provide a more in-depth view on significant events as well. The reason I've gone with a sale is that I need to plan my life well ahead if I'm going to achieve this. So hopefully by the time we reach the end of Justinian's reign, I should know what's possible and hopefully be able to just continue straight on into the 570s and beyond. Not all of you listen to the podcast in the week it's released and there are new people discovering it all the time. So this should give a good number of you time to decide if you can support me. My ultimate goal would be to not only reach 1453 one day, but also to produce the podcast weekly, as I'm sure we'd all prefer. But I need to take things one step at a time, and see how many of you are able to help out. The price of the episode will be $5.00, which will be the equivalent amount in whatever currency you work with. I know some of you are very generous and willing to give more, so I will set no upper limit on what you can give. Please think of this as a donation toward the work I've done, and will do. But all I need is $5 from those who can spare it, and we can keep the story going. Please do get in touch with me if you have any questions or concerns. And I will remind you all of what's happening at the end of the next podcast. In the meantime, you can go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com, the Facebook page, or email me at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com. See you in two weeks for The Plague. <laughs>